Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody, welcome. I am so thrilled that Dr. Craig Chepke, Dr. Craig Chepke, is out there having a conversation that so many people have been trying to avoid. Well, you cannot avoid it anymore. This is expert advice when feeling down is actually serious depression. And that is one little sentence for what we're going to talk about in a very short conversation. The numbers are not lying. I personally think that they're understated. But the question is, what can we do and how do we do it? Uh, Dr. Chepke, uh, look, here's my question to you. I, I could ask you a bunch of questions about statistics, but I don't want to know that right now. I want to know what touched your heart to have you become the voice for this conversation. Well, first off, let me say thank you for uh, allowing me to be on your program. It's um, a pleasure of mine to be able to, in conjunction with Johnson Johnson, to be able to partner with them and be here because this is a very personal topic for me. So in 2020, my uncle took his own life after uh, struggling with and ultimately losing his battle with major depressive disorder. And I was a big advocate for breaking down the stigma, breaking down the barriers and helping people get access to information because knowledge is power. And ever since then, it has really even fueled my fire even more. Like you said, we can't we can't avoid this conversation any longer. People are dying every day. You know, I'm a little naive, but I'm also an optimist sometimes. And I will tell you that I thought when Olympian Simone uh, openly had a moment where we literally saw some of the signs, some of the things, right? Yeah. We, we literally saw it, but yet we did not understand it. And I think the most important thing is if you could help with this, um, to help people understand what the signs are, what the symptoms are. And then we could talk into more of the data, but there sure. are things we can be looking out for, right? Yeah, absolutely. And especially this time of the year, I mean, a lot of people will say that they've got the holiday blues, the winter blues, things of that nature, but clinical depression, as it's often called in society, which uh, on the professional side, we would call major depressive disorder. It's a, it's another animal altogether. So for major depressive disorder, it's a period of at least two weeks, but usually more than that for most people where they have symptoms almost every day for most of the day. And the symptoms are pretty wide ranging. So it, there is a depressed, a low mood, but it's really the bottom of the barrel. I mean, hopeless, helpless, worthless, feeling like nothing ever could get better. And then that's paired with things like the uh, profound loss of interest. So it could be losing interest in hobbies or, or jobs, um, even people in your family, your spouse, your children, spending time with them. Nothing feels good. Nothing seems interesting. Even things like grooming and bathing. Someone just might not have the interest or motivation to do anymore or energy to be able to do. 
There's also usually concentration or memory difficulties, just a, a really pervasive uh, draining of the person's spirit. And unfortunately, it is uh, commonly associated with the suicidal ideation or uh, suicidal behaviors. You know, you're one of the leading experts on this, doctor. And I just want people to know about this because it's really an honor and very special to have you doing this. Many people don't know that when you get out there and start to have these conversations, you go from one interview to the next and you're on a mission because we need to be on a mission with this. Yeah. Um, I also work with women in recovery, addiction, both mm. narcotics and alcohol. Yeah. And this time of year, it is just beyond. Mm-hmm. But have the numbers from where you sit, let's talk numbers for a second, because we got a whole lot of other things to talk to. But I think people, if they knew the numbers and what actually is being reported, I think they'd say, what, Dr. Craig, what did you just say? What do you think? No, I think you're right, because a lot of times people might think, oh, well, that's not something that could happen to me or to my family. But what the numbers say is that at the at the present time, it's estimated that one out of 10 people have a diagnosis of major health, major depressive disorder diagnosed by a healthcare provider. And, uh, and if you look at the lifetime of individuals, that one out of five people has ever had a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. So uh, one out of five, that is incredibly common. And it, it impacts everyone personally at yeah. some level, whether as a friend, spouse, family member, somebody. It's, it's out there and it's everywhere. People are just afraid to talk about it. Yeah. You know what I love about this? I mean, certainly I could spend all day talking about your credentials, but what I love about your background, you know, uh, NYU School of Medicine, Duke University, what I love about where you sit today, right? Um, Psychiatry University of North Carolina School of Medicine. What I love about this is you're both practitioner. I know that sounds like a strange word, even though you're psychiatrist, you're still, what I mean is you're seeing people. Oh, yeah. (laughs) as well as research. And I think that is sort of a combination that we need. Not only do we need to understand up close and personal what's happening mm-hmm. with people, but then you're also conducting studies. Isn't it important that we integrate or interweave both to provide a picture so that we have new opportunities? We have a new organization. We have organizations like Johnson & Johnson that could come forward. Yeah and partner with you, right? Isn't this important to really get both the anecdotal and the empirical stuff together? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, one saying that I use is that the plural of anecdote is anecdotes, not evidence. <laughs> we need evidence basis behind what we're doing as healthcare professionals. And re- research, we always need to bring new treatments because there's always going to be people who have mental health conditions and any health condition that aren't being well served. And that's why when the FDA approved Spravato, which is a treatment for treatment resistant depression, we haven't brought this up uh, so far today, but treatment resistant depression, despite what the name implies, there are treatments for it. Treatment resistant depression is when uh, the person has been on at least two antidepressants of an adequate dose and adequate duration, which is usually four to six, six to eight weeks, and they haven't had a good response. Well, there's not that many treatments for it, but not zero. So people with treatment-resistant depression, there is hope available. But in 2019, when Spravato would, uh, was approved, that's a medication that I've seen favorable results with many of my patients with treatment-resistant depression. Now, unlike most medications that we prescribe or take, it's not a pill, it's a nasal spray, and it's delivered in a healthcare setting. And it's uh, not on a daily basis. It's two times a week for the first month, once a week uh, the second month, and thereafter can be weekly or every other week. And like all medications, there's potential benefits and potential risks. 
So there's a certain side effects that Spiravato could have. And if someone wants to know about it, then they should, uh, yeah. a couple things. One, talk with their healthcare provider, but also Spiravato.com. It's S-P-R-A-V-A-T-O.com is a great resource. And I really encourage people to do this. Can I get back to something you said? Because now, just like sure. empirical and anecdotal data, I want to get back to something you said. Mm-hmm. We need to have a conversation with our physician because here's yeah. the illusion we have. We have the illusion that our physicians, they know everything. <laughs> now, they're very busy people. They may or may not overthink, but yet we really hesitate to bring a conversation to yeah. them. What have you learned about how we can help people open up the conversation and say, I mean, I hand my doctor a written note and mm-hmm. I say, today, this is what I found. And I would put spravado.com on there in a hot minute. Yeah. How do we encourage people not to be afraid to have these conversations. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. First off, I love that you bring an agenda to your appointments. I I, <laughs> that's actually something I recommend to my patients because, you know, it, it can be a long time or feel like a long time between appointments. You may not remember by the time you get to the appointment what you wanted to talk about or forget details. So keeping a journal, keeping a list, whatever it is, I think those are great ways to uh, be proactive in your healthcare. But then on top of that, um, we just have to, as you said, have the conversation. A lot of people are afraid mm-hmm. because of stigma. They feel like it's a moral failing or weakness or something they should just get over, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I mean, I've heard it a million ways. I'm sure you probably have too. Yeah. But this is a medical condition. Yeah. So one story that I like to tell to try and combat that stigma is that until the invention of the MRI machine, then multiple sclerosis was thought to be psychosomatic. That's More right. or less, the doctor said, oh, you're just kind of making it up. It's all in your head. Well, the thing is, when the MRI was invented, they did the MRI scans of people with MS. And oh, what do you know? They have all these plaques and lesions in their brain and in their spinal cord. That's where we're at, I believe, with major depressive disorder. We just don't have the technology yet, whether it's going to be a scan, a blood test, a DNA test. I don't know. But eventually, some way, we'll be able to see that this is a real medical condition. But just because we don't have that technology yet does not mean it's not a real medical condition that we need to just be brave and speak about it. If you're not sure if it's MDD or not, ask your healthcare provider. If you don't have a psychiatrist or psych NP, talk to your primary care provider and they can either treat you themselves or help up to facilitate a referral. Yeah, I think one of the hardest conversations to have, especially if you've been told you have something that's not treatable as this is a lot of yeah. times we're told this, right? Um, we're, every day there's something new. I want to get back to something um, that we talked about. There are signs, and especially coming mm-hmm. into the holidays, I really want people to know not to blow these off. Yeah. You know, the holiday doesn't explain a lot of things. What is it in your practice? What have you seen some of the signs? And then, you know, my follow-up question is this. Don't be afraid to ask someone to come with you, right? Mm-hmm. Because they see us better than we see ourselves. But what should we be on the lookout for? What signs? Right. So uh, as you, met, you met, made a lot of great points there, I'd love to, to hit upon. So if you know someone that you think is struggling or could be struggling, don't just write it off. You know, Talk to them. Say, hey, I've noticed these things. Uh, I've noticed that you uh, you haven't shown up for to go to bowling night the past couple of weeks or uh, other things that might seem a little bit out of character that maybe they're withdrawing a little bit, taking a couple of steps back. You know, maybe it is just that they're busy with life and kids and who knows what, but don't take it for granted that it's just because they're busy. Bring it up, show that you care about the person. And then if if they are having some issues, 
and urge them to talk with a healthcare provider and go with them. Actually, just yesterday, I was seeing uh, a, a patient in my in my office just over here, and uh, the, his wife came along with him. And she's like, "Is it okay if I'm here?" I was like, "Yes, absolutely." Uh, you know, there's a reason why doctors aren't allowed to prescribe to themselves because we all have blind spots about ourselves. And I prefer if someone feels comfortable with it for them to come with a spouse, a child, a parent, a, a best friend, someone who knows them really well. Because I think that that for me as a clinician, it gives me a lot more information. You know, I mentioned imaging before. I say it's like going, seeing someone by themselves is like seeing them in two dimensions, like an x-ray. Whereas seeing someone with someone who knows them very intimately is like going from two to three dimensions. Look, I want to yeah. take a minute. I know we only got a couple left, but I want to talk about Spravato for a minute. And mm-hmm. again, S P. R-A-V as in Victor, A-T-O dot com. I know you've got to be really over the moon about this, but we didn't, I didn't ask you why. This is a treatment that many people have said you cannot have a treatment for treatment resistance depression. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about how this is a solution for the time we have left, if you don't mind. Sure. So there, there are treatments, despite the name. Uh, sometimes I joke that psychiatrists can't name anything, right? Like <laughs> treatment resistant depression. When people hear that, they might think, well, I guess there's no hope because it's resistant to treatment. So I shouldn't bother trying any treatments. There are fewer treatments than for the regular major depressive disorder, but that's not zero. And so even adding one new treatment like Spravato in 2019, when it was FDA approved, that's a big deal. Because and every option that we add for a condition like treatment resistant depression adds hope. And that's the most important thing that a healthcare provider, in my opinion, can give to a person is hope. So that's, uh, I'm very, I was very excited and remain excited that this is an option for adults with treatment resistant depression. I want to thank you for today. I only have one other question. I'd love to know your personal message and what you'd like to leave us with here, Dr. Craig, please. Well, it it stems upon that idea of hope that no matter how bad things are, no matter how bad they seem, there is always hope. And that for anyone out there who is struggling with suicidal thoughts, first know that there is a 988 number, like there's 911 for general emergencies. 988 is the uh, suicide and crisis lifeline that you can call 20 or text 24 seven. But uh, if you feel like the world would be better off without you, I I guarantee you it would not be. So hang in there, keep fighting and always maintain hope and reach out for help because we are there in the healthcare community to, to catch you. And I want to have this message for those of you out there that are watching people that are close to you. I would, I would err on the side Mm -hmm. of being proactive when you hear the language and you see the signs. I would err on the side Mm -hmm. of saying, I think I should do something here. Because if you err the other way, you may not be able to save that life. Right, Dr. Craig? I agree 100%. All right. Thank you, everybody. Again, spravado.com. I'm Dr. Pat, Dr. Craig Chepke. We'll see you in a few. What if I were to tell you all, what if I were to tell you that we're going to unlock some secrets? Unlock some secrets about your respiratory system and making the most of the defense you already have. What if I were to tell you we could do something truly different with Dr. Nasli? I just blew your name. Dr. Nasli Latafi. What do I mean by that? Co-founder and chief scientific officer at Applied Biological Laboratories. But here's where we live in right now. I did a whole show, a full hour on the world of technology that we are yet to discover. 
what if we had discoveries now for things that we thought we never have discoveries for? That's what the good doctor is going to talk with us about, because many of us have been in a world where we thought we didn't have solutions. But if you're Dr. Nasley, you know that solutions are what she's passionate about. Right, doctor? Am I talking about almost we're talking about something that people may look at and say, are we really talking about that today? I mean, how many times do people say that to you? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, that is exactly right. And that is the passion behind our product and our company and why we started it over 10 years ago and all of the research that we did. Because we thought, you know, it doesn't make sense that why, you know, why do we keep getting sick? Um, and this was way before uh, the COVID pandemic and before masks became the norm. You know, um, we started to say, okay, so why do we get sick? How do those viruses even get in us? And we initially thought, and I think like everybody else is probably thinking, okay, how do we get sick? Well, if you think about it, the viruses are in the air. How do they make us sick? You imagine that they go to our lungs and all of a sudden we get sick, but that's not true. When you drill down on the science, you find out that there's a process that happens. So the virus is in the air. It binds to receptors in our nose and throat. And that's where we need to focus on. That's where the science needs to focus on. And that is the mystery and the discovery is that we actually at that point can do a lot to prevent ourselves from getting sick. And we actually have immune cells that are right there. Um, and there are many, many different parts of our immune system. So we have, we have vaccines that help us build antibodies, and those are immune cells in our blood. But we miraculously have immune cells that are lining um, our nose and throat and are right there to help protect us. There are different types of immune cells, but we can activate them with a unique blend of ingredients, which we did. Yeah. Dr. Jeffy, here's the thing I want to say. Bingo. Bingo. Because th this may seem like common language to you. This may be like, people don't, they don't know this. No, people don't know this. And there's a lot of reasons why we do that in a much longer show. We talk about on a longer show, social media, influence, information. But what you said, 10 years you've spent now creating a solution that my language, not very scientific, but here it goes, that cuts this off before it can build up momentum, right? Is is that like accurate in any way? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, because we actually have a defense and a, and a mask in inside our body. It's, it's not a mask that's on the outside, but it's on the inside. Um, it's inside of our, lining our nose and throat and, and it's a barrier. So we have a respiratory barrier, just like we have a gut barrier, which people might be more familiar with because that's um, entered the mainstream more right now. But we also have a respiratory barrier, which works much like our gut barrier. So a gut barrier, you need to have probiotics to build up the good bacteria, to build up your barrier so that when you eat food, um, the bad stuff doesn't get in your body. It's the same thing with the respiratory barrier. There's a lining um, and your body has immune cells and it's always fighting for you to keep the viruses out. But when you have chronic inflammation or you have diabetes or you're obese, uh, which all have in common underlying chronic inflammation, uh, that compromises your barrier because that takes takes energy, takes nutrients away from those immune yeah. cells at your barrier because they're fighting other um, 
other inflammatory issues elsewhere. So, um, yeah, I love to use the analogy of multitasking. I just love to use this analogy because I've gone through my own healing journey and I know exactly what you're talking about. But I love what you just said, because think about your life. You know, how are you ever able to focus on that one thing you want to get done really well when you're trying to battle and fight 100? Um, Before we go on, I want to ask you about the ingredients. I want people to know how they can find out more about what we're talking about. What's the best website for people to go to? Well, um, so we are our our website since since we are on the cutting edge and we are the first to take this concept of mucosal immunity. There is science. There's science that you can go to the NIH website. If you Google mucosal immunity, there's a lot of great science on how these molecules work, these molecules work and the cells work in a respiratory lining. But we are at the cutting edge. We're we're the first to um, actually formulate something that works in this way. So I would say go to our website, biovanta.com, and that will be the gateway to other science that you can see and um, other people that have been written up that have written about us. Okay, I want to spell it because I've already been there. It's B as in boy, I O V as in Victor, A N T A dot com. Go there. Lots of information. Um, Also, more information than you can imagine. I want to I want to talk about ingredients if we could because i know these are short interviews and i want to just give people a sense of what you all put into creating this can you give us a just give us a rundown if you don't mind yeah 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 so uh first that's a great question and thank you so much for asking it because i love talking about it (laughs) um so first we sought to understand what is really happening because as a scientist, as someone who, like you said, you know, we can always discover more. I mean, that's my passion, really discovering. And the first step is to question. So before you discover anything, you have to have a question. Well, I wonder if this is actually working in this way, or why am I assuming that something's working as it's working? So I really questioned, okay, so why are we having all these respiratory epidemics and what's happening? What's not going right? Because I fundamentally believe in nature and um, so I believe that there is a solution. So I drilled down and I said, okay, um, what what is actually happening? And then what is in nature that can help us? What can we find? Because a lot of times nature has answers that we haven't discovered yet why or how they work, but they work. And we put together a formula of natural molecules um, containing what we call an immune complex, which is lactoferrin, which is found in um, breast milk, and lysozyme, which is found in honey, as well as egg white, and, and aloe vera, um, which has a lot of anti-inflammatory properties. And what lysozyme and lactoferrin have in common is that they're natural molecules that are designed to protect the embryo or the baby to fortify its immune system before it actually builds up its own immune system. So they're very powerful immune compounds. And um, we do know how they work. It's not totally mysterious, but yeah, but they're naturally found in our respiratory lining and um, they're naturally there to defend ourselves. So that was our starting point. And then we said, how do they work? Because we have a laboratory in um, Brooklyn and we're part of Startup New York. And we also have a laboratory in New York City. 
And, um, you know, we have scientists working for us and we have a lot of uh, collaborators as well, including in academia. And um, we said, okay, so how can we make the best formulation to work effectively? And um, yeah, so that's how, that's how, that's how we came up with BioVanto. Yeah, I love it. And I'm so glad that we're talking about this. I know this is a really short interview, so I'm going to talk really fast. I'm from New York, so don't worry. Um, <laughs> I, I, when I went and I looked at this, I was blown away by some of the things you've discovered, even your conversation about plant-based aspirin. I mean, everything that you've done. And what I want to say to people that look at this, it isn't just about the ingredients. It's about the way you formulate these together. You know, sometimes people read things they're like, ah, I can do that. Let me go get. No, you can't just go get it. You guys have spent 10 years formulating something that works and are proving it. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, it's formulated. Um, and, you know, I, I always like I said, I believe or we all believe in, in that nature is best. So if if you can do whatever you can to not get sick yeah. and not have to use yeah. Biomanta, that's great. That Nothing would make me happier. But if you do get sick, I want you to have at your disposal something that actually works and something that will actually help you heal instead of make you worse. Yeah. Lysozyme is really fascinating and we don't have enough time to really go into that. But if we did, you and I would have a party in talking about it <laughs> because it's one of these things that we don't, yes. unless you've been not well, like my 10 year journey, you don't know about these things. But look at what you're doing. Tell us about really quickly the 10 year journey for you, because I know we got like two minutes left. I want people to understand that you spent 10 years formulating, approving, research, right? Yes. Yes. Um, I'm glad you brought up lysosome. I'll just say really quickly, it's it was discovered by Alexander Fleming, the same um, amazing scientist who discovered penicillin. <laughs> um so uh yeah it's it's amazing um miraculous molecule um yes 10 years um but before that 10 years i um did my phd in um molecular uh biology and neuroscience and that took some time as well <laughs> so it's a lot of time and effort into really drilling down into the mechanisms behind what's happening um and yes the 10 year journey was basically uh kicked off um by uh the bird flu pandemic in 2009 right um which i'm old enough to have lived through and um uh just had our son at that time and this really got the wheels turning and got me thinking about everything that i studied in my phd about molecules and receptors and how viruses bind and um then, you know, we just started questioning everything and we had to pinch ourselves along the way because even we didn't believe, oh my gosh, like this, these things have been on the market for so long. How, how? And, you know, it just, I can't even fully explain it now. All I can say I <laughs> is that the science doesn't add up and, you know, it's our science as well as others. And uh, the science doesn't always translate to what's on the market. Uh, it always takes, you know, often takes decades for things to catch up. So that's why people should do their own research. Well, congratulations to you. Thank you so much for all of this. And the reason I say congratulations to you and your team is because you connected the dots. You know, when we go down the pathway of science and, and also my own research, we go down a path we don't understand at the time we're studying it, that the application for it, it may be for a future time that's to come. But by you all putting the dots together, even though this was discovered way ago, you've been able to create something. And I think you're 
my opinion, I think you're at the beginning of more to come with this, if I might just say that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for all of this. Again, please give out the website. And last question, what's your personal message? What do you want to leave us with? Um, my personal message is, and thank you so much for having me. It's been really, really fun speaking with you. Um, I, my personal message is basically to everyone, take care of yourself, do your research, um, and you know, be careful with what you trust your body to. I give out that website because I want people to find out more. They can read up about the ingredients, the science, everything on their own. But how's the best way for them to do that? Uh, our website is a great gateway because we've um, you know, collected a lot of information from other sources as well. But it's biovanta.com, B-I-O-V-A-N-T-A.com. And for those of you out there, lozenges, no nasal spray, there's something for everybody out there. But go look. Pass it on. Thank you so much, doctor, for everything you're doing. Congratulations to you and your team for not giving up. Thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) All right, everybody, let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Welcome to Designing Purpose, your guide to finding and pursuing the career you were meant for, with me, life and career coach Brooke Kretz. Want to know the scariest part about leaving your job? The unknowing of what's next. But what if it were possible to leave the job you hate and pursue something that feeds your soul while still meeting your financial goals? On Designing Purpose, I will guide you step by step to leave jobs that no longer serve you and connect to the career and life you were meant for. Join in for powerful stories, examples, and guidance to go from feeling stuck in the unknowing to confidently transitioning to your next career. The Designing Purpose show starts now. So over the course of the last three episodes on Designing Purpose, we have explored the first part of the purpose journey called the Purpose Catalyst. That period of time when we might feel that tug of not being in the right place and we need to decide if it's time to make a change. To make this decision easier, we have outlined how to understand when you are disconnected from your purpose based on how you feel, cope, and imagine, the reasons you might be avoiding leaving your jobs are actually lies, the fears they are rooted in, and why you don't have to listen to them, and when your job invokes unhealthy sides of ourselves, we called our should selves that ultimately leave us dissatisfied and misaligned to our true calling. So now that we have all of this knowledge and understanding of why we might not be in the best place for us, we can just leave our jobs, right? We can walk in confidently on Monday and deliver a professional notice with tight boundaries around when we leave and what we will do until that point and respectfully accept our boss's wishes for our continued success elsewhere. So if you're like most people in Jobs Not For You, this image probably fills you with equal amounts of excitement and longing to have this chapter clearly shut so you can move on to what's next. And also dread and terror at leaving what is safe, stable, and familiar to venture out to the great unknown. And that's just it. Even with the knowledge, the understanding, and the information of why we aren't in the best places for us, what it does to us physically, mentally, and emotionally, and how it can bring out sides of us that are actually harming us. We can make equal, if not greater, 
justifications of all the wonderful reasons to stay. The fact that you've been there for so long and know the systems inside and out. The amazing time off and benefits you've worked your way up to. Your supportive coworkers who can express things to you just by a look when your boss is talking all about synergy and how he invented it. Flexibility to work from home. The mentors you've had who have helped you grow. All of these pulled together can make even the strongest among us question whether we're making the right choice or simply being entitled by wanting something different. So instead of figuring it all out, let's combine two of humanity's favorite pastimes, games and focusing on other people's problems to avoid acknowledging our own by playing Is It Time to Go! Alright, so first up we have Sally Jenkins here. Sally is a tax attorney and has an amazing salary and benefits. She gets a lot of respect from her co-workers and enjoys working with her legal team. However, most of her job is not spent interacting with people and she is predominantly writing, reading, and putting together different documents that have to be written in such a way that she feels she cannot get close to her clients or be as empathetic and forthcoming as she would like to be. Most nights she is working until 9 or 10 p.m. on various briefs and paperwork, which also prevents her from spending much quality time with her two daughters. But she feels it's justified because she is demonstrating what it means to be a strong, successful woman and will earn what they need to to have any opportunity she could ever want. So, it is now time for us to decide, is it time to go? Hmm, yeah. Ah, uh, that's a tricky one. Good co-workers, high salary, helps people, but kind of at a distance, actually. And it is a long hours job, too, with all the paperwork. Doesn't really get to see your daughters. But I mean, I'm sure they'll feel better once they have their college paid for and they'll understand. Oh, hmm. Okay, you know what? Let's come back to this one. I think we just need to get warmed up first. Okay, so next up we have Robert Collins. Robert is a pediatric nurse and has an incredible passion for kids and helping people. His favorite part of his job is when he can offer comfort to a sick or ailing kid and their parents, especially when he can distract them with a story, a song, or by making them laugh. His patients really appreciate this, but the doctors have started telling Robert that he's being unprofessional and shouldn't be taking away from answering parents' questions or giving them any false hope in case things might be serious. Every time Robert tries to be himself to comfort a patient, one of his doctors pulls him aside to explain how he should do things and not to go off the system of how things are run there. They also chastise him for taking too much time with some patients, thus delaying the doctors and others who are waiting but he also has to only work three days a week gets along with the other nurses and the practice has promised to pay for him to go to medical school should he ever need it so is it time to go uh, okay, so I mean, it's not great that his doctors kind of micromanage him, and he's always walking on eggshells to try to keep them happy and keep moving through patients. But 
I mean, it seems like he gets along well with the other nurses and his patients who appreciate him. And I mean, that's so huge to have med school paid for if he wants. I mean, that's hundreds of thousands of dollars he would save, right? I feel like it's worth sticking it out, at least for now. No, even if he does start to kind of hate the work because he can't really be himself. Uh, yeah, this is also hard. Let's just come back to this one, too. I feel like the stakes are too high. All right. So last but not least, we have Kelly Thurston. Kelly is a middle school social studies teacher who got into it because she loves history and has always had a knack for explaining things in fun and interesting ways that kids, especially middle schoolers who would usually rather be doing something else, can understand and relate to. But due to always changing state and national mandates about what she can and cannot teach in her class, Kelly has to scramble to rework how things are taught, in some cases even omitting parts of history. And even though this is hard for her to do, she uses it as a new creative exercise to explore how she can best represent history while focusing more on the things she can actually teach. She feels this is okay since she doesn't have to change that much, but she also feels guilty when students sense she isn't telling the full story and ask questions to fill in the blanks. Kelly, however, loves the flexibility of the teaching schedule so she can be home in the afternoons and summers with her twin toddlers. So, is it time to go? Okay, so this one is a little clearer. I mean, she does have to change things for her students, which they don't like, but she always gets to be a little creative. And I mean, she's probably only really softening a few things that happened, not like erasing whole wars and things. And it is good that she has more time with her young kids, especially in the summers. I mean, it seems like her students really need her too. I mean, it's so hard to find good teachers. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is too complicated. I give up. So these examples show us that it can be shockingly difficult to understand when it's time to make a change in our jobs, especially because although they exist, having a job that is awful across the board is rare, and it's easy to find reasons to stay and benefits that make the job seem more attractive. If we only examine the pros and cons each weighted the same, there will often be times when the pros are equal or even outweigh what is challenging or misaligned for us in the job. That's why the key to deciding when it's time to go is not to evaluate based on the pros and cons of the position alone. It's to examine the answer to one question that I want each of you to be able to answer by the end of this episode. Are the challenges I'm facing in my job systemic? Meaning, are they unchangeable by you or others? Do they have a clear, feasible, and actionable course of solution supported by people with authority? Over the course of this episode, I will show you how you can answer this question by understanding, first, what is really bothering you about your job, and which of your values is that compromising? Next, what do these compromised values tell you about your true priorities at work? And finally, is what is bothering you fixable or part of a larger systemic issue when we take into account those values and priorities? If the answer to this final question is yes, 
then we will know once and for all that it is time to go. And to better illustrate how to determine if the challenges you face at work are systemic, we will move through two examples. The first is based on a loose example of a former client of mine we will call James, and the other from my own story when I finally decided to leave my last job. Let's start with James. James first came to me when he realized he had a tough decision to make. He loved the work he was doing, and especially his relationships with his coworkers, but he was having challenges gaining trust and respect from his boss. And this was resulting in micromanaging, office politicking, and generally cutting James out of decisions in his department. James was genuinely torn. He loved what he did and especially appreciated being a strong support person and advocate for other people in his organization. Although he was unhappy and frustrated, he still wasn't sure if leaving was the right decision. So we began to run through this exercise to determine what was really bothering him, what this said about his values and priorities, and whether what was hindering these was in fact systemic or could be addressed or fixed. As we dug into what was most upsetting James and his role, we discovered it came down to feeling constantly micromanaged and even denigrated by his boss consistently being overlooked for supervisor opportunities despite communicating this desire to his boss, being cut out of team decisions or collaborative problem solving, and lastly, a culture of busyness that made communicating openly more challenging. When we understood what was at the root of his frustrations, we could begin to see which of his values they were compromising. Why did these things in particular seem to make the job feel challenging when so much else was going well? As we examined them, we realized that the micromanaging boss was compromising James' values of trust and respect. The being overlooked for supervisor opportunities, despite communicating them, compromised his value of growth. Being cut out of team decisions or problem-solving compromised his values of collaboration and openness. And the culture of busyness that made communicating openly more challenging compromised his values of connection and supportiveness. All of these core values, trust, respect, desire for growth, collaboration, openness, connection, and supportiveness were being compromised and repressed on a regular basis, even though there were only a few challenges within the job itself. And even if he was still finding some level of fulfillment and values alignment in other areas, we could now see why he continued to feel frustrated. James loved giving up himself and meeting people where they were. He was a huge support on his team. And yet he didn't feel it reciprocated by his closest supervisor. And even though this might seem like something we can just brush off and get on with the rest of our job, we see now how that's not so easy when his core values were not being honored consistently. Let's look at my own example of what frustrated me and my previous job. 
a culture of constant doing and never enoughness, perfectionism to a degree that fear dominated, unrealistic expectations of how quickly and high quality things could be done, and an unwillingness to create vulnerable space to discuss challenges and find solutions. And it took me a really long time to understand what values this was compromising and why this culture upset me so much when otherwise I enjoyed the work greatly and got to use a large range of my skills. And what I realized was that was underneath all of this was making people feel unworthy, making people feel like they shouldn't actually be in their job. Making people feel like what they have to offer isn't actually valued or valuable. And when all of my values, like honoring people for who they are, messiness, play, fun, curiosity, openness, were in direct opposition to this way of being, and when it became consistent and showed no signs of changing, that was when I began to question whether my values would ever truly be honored there or if the issues impacting them were in fact systemic. And to get to that answer, now that we have our core values in hand and how our jobs are impacting them, we can better understand what our priorities are and if these are consistent with what we experience at work. So let's go back to James's story. He realized that his values at work were really a sense of trust, shared appreciation and support of one another, and feeling valued and respected to contribute. So as we dug into those values, we started to look at what would be needed to facilitate those. What were those few core elements that would make James feel like his values were honored and he could show up to work every day as his full self? As we talked, we realized it came down to four key priorities in this order. One, a trusting management style. Two, opportunities for growth. Three, people management responsibilities. And four, an open and supportive company culture. Without these priorities in this order, James would continue to have his values compromised and ultimately feel misaligned at work, even if other things were going well. That's because those values were at the core of who he was, his true nature. When those were not consistently honored, it didn't matter how many interesting projects he had, amazing benefits he racked up, colleagues he connected with. He would always feel like he couldn't be his full true self at work. Before moving on to see whether what repressed his values was systemic or could be fixed, let's quickly look at how my own priorities emerged when I identified which of my values were being compromised. Once I understood that at the core of what was frustrating me at work and how it was in direct opposition to my core values of honoring people for who they are, messiness, play, fun, curiosity, openness. It helped me get super clear about what I actually needed at work to feel at my most whole and best self. Not just the content of the work itself, 
but what elements needed to be prioritized first in order for me to do my best and most enjoyable work. And after many, many months, (laughs) I realized that my top four priorities at work were relationships that needed to be prioritized over results, people to be invited to be their full, messy, silly selves, lots of fun and enjoyment in the process, not just constantly chasing outcomes, and time, time to just be, consider, explore, imagine, rest, not just constantly doing. Once I got really clear on what I needed to feel my best at work, not just what was helpful or enjoyable or nice to have, I was able to see if what was currently compromising them was something fixable and changeable with a clear recourse for change, or if it was part of a larger systemic issue that had no clear action or authority to facilitate it. So back to James. With his priorities in one hand and key frustrations in the other, he could finally begin to identify what was underneath them and if it was truly systemic. And with this in mind, he began to question, if his boss is micromanaging him, is there any recourse to speak with the boss and set expectations for how they work together and when oversight is actually necessary? In his case, When this did not result in any meaningful changes, he then questioned if it was possible to speak with his boss's boss about what he was experiencing to see if recourse was possible at that level. When he did this, the senior leadership was empathetic, but in their minds, there was nothing they felt they could do without alienating his boss, especially because he was in such a small department and they needed as many staff members as possible. But in this case, is there any way he can change managers or rework his reporting chain of commands? And in that case, there was no one who he could report to or work with since he was in such a small department and therefore felt stuck working closely with his boss. Once we were able to reach the root of the issues he was experiencing and discover that there actually was not any meaningful opportunities or options for change with authority to guide that change, especially since his boss did not support guiding the ways they worked and senior leadership felt their hands were tied and they could not affect any sort of reporting relationship change. It became clear that James would never have what he needed for his core values and priorities at work to be honored. A key advocate who could foster an atmosphere of trust, respect, support, connection, and collaboration. Then we realized that no matter how much he did enjoy other aspects of his work, and even other team members who he worked with, he would continue to feel worn down by this constant mismatch of values and never feel he could fully be himself and what he was doing. Once James came to this conclusion that all of his options for action, speaking with his boss, raising the issues to top leadership, making the case for how he could better contribute and having it fall on deaf ears, he made the uncomfortable but necessary decision to leave his job, knowing that by staying, even with everything he enjoyed, it would never fully align with who he was or what he was meant to do. 
As you know from previous episodes, my story was similar, but with a slightly different root cause that made my reasons for leaving systemic. I realized after some time that while my boss would speak about creating a culture of support and collaboration on the team, there was never the time or resources to meaningfully make that happen. And this came down to their boss and upper leadership feeling increasing pressure to say yes, take on more, and solidify our reputation and foothold in the market where our office was located. In my case, having a boss that continued expecting more from us was not necessarily their choice, but it came from clients and also their boss who were also constantly putting pressure on them to perform. And part of that pressure came because there weren't enough staff and too much work to deliver. And they seemed to be taking on too much work because there was a risk of poor optics or reputation if they said no. So even if employees were facing challenges and requesting lighter workloads or longer deadlines, it ended up not actually being a possibility. Once I realized that it wasn't them, it was not my boss in and of themselves, and even if they quit or were fired and then were replaced with someone else, we'd still be facing the same issues, just with someone new to feel frustrated towards, because they were a victim of a system that was overworked and under-resourced with these sky-high expectations. Although it took me longer than I would have liked, I eventually realized that there were no meaningful options for change and authority of others to make those changes a reality. Nothing would ever be as I hoped it to be. And I realized how many times I had banged my head against the wall trying to change something that never would. And even with the many benefits and opportunities that job had provided me, I made the scary decision to leave and discover what I was better suited for, which could make my priorities non-negotiable. So now it's your turn. As you understand what is really bothering you at work, what values that is compromising, which priorities you need to have present at work to feel whole and align with what you're meant to do, and how much control you have over making those happen, it's time to answer the question. Are the challenges I'm facing in my job systemic? Do I actually have the ability and the authority to facilitate change and make sure my values are honored? Or can I admit that unfortunately, the issues go too deep and it's time to move on. Although this decision can be fraught and difficult and make you question yourself right up until hitting send on your resignation, like it was for me, I guarantee that the second you do let go, the second you release your tight grip on this job you felt like you needed to have, even if it was harming you in the process, and the second you once and for all make the decision to walk away, you will wonder why you held on for so long, because you will finally be free to walk towards all of the incredible opportunities that you have waiting for you. Now that we have concluded the purpose catalyst phase, the coming episodes will focus on how to connect back to your true purpose, including how we can actually connect with that purpose and understand what we are meant to do how to break old ways of working, thinking, or being for ultimate fulfillment in our next career or venture, how to do things your way in service to a balanced and fulfilling life, 
And lastly, how to develop an experimentation plan to put it all together. As always, I am so excited to be with you on this journey. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. You have been listening to Designing Purpose, your guide to finding and pursuing the career you were meant for. If you are curious to navigate the unknowns keeping you stuck in your job and confidently discover and pursue the career you were meant for, tune in every second and fourth Thursday at 3.30 p.m. Pacific Time, 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time on TransformationTalkRadio.com, where I give straightforward and practical guidance to facilitate your next career move. For more information, visit www.thepurposefulpractice.com.